welcome back to another week of book club this is chapter eight i believe yep. uh, i should know that because i'm the one recording this right now um <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this so far grab your books grab a cup of tea uh, and hope you guys enjoy and dig in with us here we got a good one in store so uh let's let's get going do it welcome scott do you want to do the summary this week yes i think i could do the summary i'll just read the did you first read chapter paragraph. eight i did read chapter eight i read it i read the chapter and i highlighted things in it the the name of this chapter is compromising with racism during the civil rights movement and it kind of goes back and forth between Martin Luther King and what he did and his role kind of, and then it talks, compares and contrasts that with Billy Graham's role in that uh, during the civil rights movement and just Billy Graham kind of obviously representing the evangelical uh, white Christian viewpoint, according to Jamar Tisby and then uh, Martin Luther King Jr. being Martin Luther King Jr. really uh, that side of the civil rights. So it kind of compares and contrasts that. Uh, and so that's what it really dives into. And and just those two different views and uh, viewpoints of what the civil rights movement was uh, in the 60s. Uh, and so that's that's what we go through in this chapter. Yeah. Do you want to start out with a takeaway or do you want me to go into my first takeaway of this? Yeah. So I, I again, you know, I think we kind of started off with doing takeaways per se, but I didn't really have any takeaways, quote unquote, more of a, mm-hmm. a couple thoughts. Um one of the one of the first thoughts towards the beginning of the book, or, or beginning of the chapter, uh, I wrote down a note and I said this book is getting hard to read. Uh, he seems he seems to continually bash white people for never really doing enough. Uh, and then kind of the question I asked myself uh, is this something I need to be more introspective about. And this is really the first chapter that I kind of felt like that maybe and had even a remotely uh, close feeling to uh, him just bashing people too much. Um, And so that was kind of an interesting thing going into the chapter with that thought. And then I even had a conversation with somebody else, another one of our friends that has read this book before. And he kind of pointed out how maybe there is a time and a place for us to be bashed over the head and all of our flaws pointed out so that we can really work through them and work on those flaws uh, from a perspective of humility. Uh, And I think I I kind of let my own pride get in the way uh, at the beginning of this chapter saying, like, he's been just raking us over the coals for the past seven chapters. When is he going to have some kind of like, these, these are the steps that we can take. Uh, and, and we'll get into it later in this chapter. And he does even in this chapter have kind of steps you can take. But then I know looking forward to the to the ending chapters, he kind of really talks about action steps we can take. And then Jamar Tisby even wrote a second book that's even more practical on steps we can take. So I think I kind of let my pride get in the way uh, in this for in this chapter for the first time, really reading this book. And it was kind of a gut check of you know, why am I reading this book? Am I reading this book to feel good about myself and what I'm doing? Or am I reading this book to learn and grow and figure out what I can do better? 
Uh, so that was kind of my first first takeaway. I definitely see where you're coming from. And I get that same kind of my first thought of this. You kind of got the same indication here when you started talking about Billy Graham in this chapter. And it just kind of I got the same vibe of like, man, I do feel like he's kind of raking over the coals, you know, and like kind of just kind of doing that. And, I, and again, I, I, I agree that there is a time and a place to do so. But I saw something today, too, from Christianity Today on their Instagram story that caused me to, I don't know, at least caused me to look at this through a different light. Because my first thought was in reading this book in relation to Billy Graham, he talks about Billy Graham being a racial moderate when it comes to segregation. Somebody that, you know, he like he made sure his services were not segregated. He made sure that he was upholding the law of the land and like. He, he wasn't polarizing any anybody or any person. Like he even says to his credit that like Graham went much further than most white evangelicals would go to desegregate religious gatherings. But it's like he still criticized Graham for not openly coming out and overtly being against it. But I think in the relation to Graham, like, I don't know, it, 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 draws, us, it draws this line because like, for example, Graham knew, especially in the South, that by being overtly, by being like, you know, taking a political stance on it all, even like that he may alienate people. And his goal was to have as many people come and hear about the gospel and like preferred a preferred a racial strategy of one family member and one relationship at a time in conversation, which I mean, you kind of hear people talk about today, like racism being one in the trenches of conversations with friends and family. So like he definitely wasn't against, he was, he was definitely against racism and wanted racial, you know, he was not like the radical, you know, white evangelicals in South who may just think racism is okay, you know, but like, I don't Mm. think the point of his ministry was to alienate large clumps of people. And I think he probably had that in his mind when making those decisions, you know, like, Mm -hmm. but I saw something today where Christianity Today was quoting, I need to look up the validity of it and the context of it, but like MLK was quoting that, you know, like his, because of Graham, like his like his ministry and his protest and like movement would not have been as successful without Billy Graham, you know, like mm-hmm. him having huge praise for Billy Graham. And that's a, right. that's a contemporary peer. Like they were operating at the same time in the 1960s, you know? Yeah. That's so interesting that you pointed out like that because I never, I never would have put those two together. I don't know why I wouldn't, but I would never put Billy Graham and Martin Luther King Jr. doing their, like they were at their peak at the same time. Yeah. Which is really a really interesting thing to think about. Yeah. And they had two different objectives, you know? Mm. Um, I don't know. I, sometimes I can get a little bit hesitant when people are like, because you see this today on social media a lot where people, like if you're focused on one thing, like for example, if we are writing, a, if we're doing a podcast and say our podcast was like a comedy podcast or something, whatever it may be. Like you want it to be. <laughs> yeah, like the silly podcast I want. Like if that's our if that's what we're doing and our goal is to entertain people and to capture a wide audience of people, you know, just because we may not be using that platform to overtly fight against racial injustice doesn't mean that we don't want racial injustice to end. You know, it's like that's just not the platform and not what we're doing on that platform. And like Billy Graham's ministry and platform was to to have revivals and have as many people come to Christ as possible, you know, like I'm just wondering if it was the time and place. It's always the time and place to call out those things, but the same way, like, I mean, not every single sermon on Sunday mornings, you're calling out, 
you know, pornography, like something you got to talk, talk and other stuff too. I'm probably getting into yeah. a lot of deep waters and I don't want to be misconstrued. Um, <laughs> but I hope you get the, at least the intent of what I'm saying. Um, don't hear what I'm not saying. Like, don't write me and ask the email calling me. I can't believe you aren't supporting, you know, the, the, uh, yeah. the equality movement because that's not what I'm saying, but I, I just right. think there's a time and place. And I don't know. I, I, I feel like Tisby came down a little hard on Graham, but I don't think that's Graham's intent. Mm-hmm. But yeah. And I think that's one of the things too. It's almost like, all right, you've, you've done this now do more. Mm-hmm. You've, you've helped a little bit. Why didn't you do this? You yeah. did X, Y, Z. Why didn't you do ABC? Mm-hmm. And it's always the do, do more, do more, do more. And it's never enough. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't even know if that's Jamar Tisby's heart. Um, Mm-hmm. I think he really is just pointing out like there are, you can do so much more. Uh, like one of the things he says, you know, kind of along those lines of the, the con- one conversation at a time, that's how things are going to change and this and that. On page 142, it says these Christians were not denying that blacks were discriminated against or that conditions in the inner city were troublesome. But they believed the solution to the problem was to trust the system. Mm-hmm. Christian moderates insisted on obeying the law, working through the courts, and patiently waiting for transformation. And that's where it maybe Graham got a little sidetracked from Martin Luther King. Is Graham wanted to trust the system, mm-hmm. and Martin Luther King is like, "No, the system is corrupt from within. You can't trust the system." Yeah. Full stop. Yeah. And I think even looking at what's going on today, we have to realize that you telling somebody to trust the system, that they've been screwed by the system for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And that's, you can't do that. Yeah. I think that is the other side of it. You know, you can't just, you can't just ignore and take a, which I think is the purpose of his book in this of like Christians may have some of the best intents, but they take more of a like, more of an attitude of complicity than anything of like mm-hmm. and complicity complicity being complacency like oh yeah, yeah it'll fix itself it just takes time things like that like my second thought that i had was on was the 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 sense of urgency of the situation mm. that it's not just something that you know laws change these people are just now being oppressed it's that there's hundreds of years of oppression that lead up to it they talked about two examples I'll bring up one, the opportunity of or the um the riots in, in California. I think Watts, like the Fire Brothers, like there was this big riot that was happening, and people were saying, Oh man, can you see this? Like these people are this is crazy. And some people looked at the protest as like people are hurting and crying out, and some looked at it as like this is crazy, law and order need to come back, like we need to uphold the system, you know. I think that is an example of like, okay, like there is a problem that's going on and people are acting out because it's like their pot is already, their, their bucket's already full, you know, like anymore, it's just making it overflow. Like we need to empty the bucket. Like we need to do some radical, you know, we can't just wait till it overflows and slowly leaks out. Like we need to empty it and like truly do something about it. I think it also comes out on page 137 and then MLK's letter from a Birmingham, Birmingham jail which I had heard about a lot, but never actually like known the context of really. I mean, I mean, I probably did back in high school, but I had forgotten today. But Christian moderates writing to MLK basically saying like, this is not the time. It's unwise. You shouldn't be doing this movement in Birmingham. We got this. 
Um, and he's basically like, we have to, you know, like, yeah, people, people failed to recognize the urgency of the situation, which I think is something we see now is like, I think, yeah, you know, 60 years later, we still are like, oh, well, just trust the system. It'll work out. And it's like, no, like it's not like 60 years have yeah. passed, you know? I wonder, one of the questions I, I wrote down to myself as I was reading this is how would I have responded to MLK if I had been alive during the time that MLK was doing his thing, how, what would my stance been back then? And you can, mm. you know, you can never, you want to say, oh, I would have st- stood with MLK a hundred percent, been by his side, you know, 100, I'm, I'm with MLK, mm-hmm. but you don't really know, mm-hmm. but it's an interesting it's an interesting thought exercise to start thinking about Mm -hmm. because we idolize MLK and, and we can hold him up and say, look at all these great things he did and so on and so forth. But then who is the MLK of our day that we're shunning Mm -hmm. and that we're saying, Oh, you're just a, you're just a a Marxist for BLM. Like you're, you're nobody you're, you're trying to turn this country communist. Mm. And we're just shunning and disregarding the MLK of today. Yeah. I was thinking about that same thought experiment earlier in the book too. Like, I don't know, like if I grew, if I grew up in the South and my pastors and teachers were all telling me that racism is okay and slavery is okay in a form of mm-hmm. slavery, like, I wonder how I would respond because I yeah. think we all like, would, I think we all like to say that we would have recognized it and been like, wow, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going to do that. But how many of us today just listen to whatever our pastors tell us and trust it as truth without reading the Bible, you know? Yep. But kind of to, kind of to wrap up this, uh, this chapter, one of the things he says on the second to last page, it's not the last paragraph. Um, but he says some, some Christians opposed King's activism because they considered race relations, a purely social issue, not a spiritual one. And that's what we have to get away from is, is separating out our spiritual life from our social life and saying, this is, this is the job for uh, the, the courts. This is the job for the justice system. This is the job for X, Y, Z. My spiritual life doesn't have anything to do with that. And that's what we have to really get in our heads is that our spiritual life and our walk with Christ should intertwine with everything that we do. If I go to work and when I'm at work, I'm not a Christian, then I'm not a Christian when I leave work either. You know, if, I, if I'm only a Christian when I'm at church on Sunday mornings and when I go out to the bar on a Friday night, I'm not a Christian anymore. That's not how our Christian life works. Like our spirituality intertwines with everything that we do and our walk with Christ should impact literally every single relationship that we have. And when it comes to social issues, are we looking at them from the standpoint of how does this impact the the social order? How does this impact the justice system? Or are we saying, how does this impact the kingdom of God, you know, bringing heaven to earth uh, as, or bringing, yeah, bringing heaven to earth as it is in heaven? Uh, and I think that's what we have to really get through our minds is that our our spiritual life is our life. Well said. Yeah, I'll let that be the bow on this for this week. Next week, nice little bow. Yeah, next week we're diving into chapter nine. And I think Ooh. there's only three more after that nine or 10, 11, 12. So 
wrapping up, flying through this book. Hope to get you guys next week on Book Club. Tune in as always. We'll see you on Monday as well for the regular convo. We got a yep. good one coming up. Um, it's gonna be, You don't want to miss it. We're going to be talking about the legal system. Just kidding. Legalism. The legal system. Legalism. Yeah. yeah. That's a little teaser for next week. Join but, us on Monday. All right. Peace out. Bye. Peace. Thank you.